Hi, it's Beth. Welcome back to the podcast. Today you'll hear Wendy's story. Wendy, like me, is the last living person in her family. She's lost her brother, sister, her mom, and her dad. Wendy's mom passed within days of her third son being born, and Wendy was unable to go to the funeral. She still feels difficult emotions about the relationship with her mom. I think you'll enjoy her story. I'm pleased to announce I'm offering a free card to all Daughters Without Moms on Mother's Day. Please see the show notes from this episode or any of my social media platforms to sign up. It's hard to be a daughter without a mom on Mother's Day, and you are not alone. Please remember, if you are enjoying the podcast, to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Uh, Today, I'm happy to introduce Wendy to you. Uh, Wendy and I met in the fall in a coaching program that we participated in together, and she was one of the few women from that group that helped me kind of think through some ideas about the Daughters Without Moms uh, program and group. And she is one of the people who just finished my very first pilot program of the permission program. So um, I've really been blessed to get to know her um, and to see her identify her own strength and to to learn how to put herself first um, in some situations. So it's been great to get to know you, Wendy. I really am thankful for your friendship. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Wendy. I'm going to let her introduce herself and then tell us the story of um, being a daughter without mom and without a mom. And then I'll follow up with some questions. And then Wendy can tell us all the places where we can find her. So thanks for being here today, Wendy. Thank you so much. So um, I have been without my mother. It'll be 12 years this July. And I um, grew up in Denver, Colorado. I'm the youngest of three children. Um, my parents had three kids in three and a half years. My, I know, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, I hope they, yeah, it was, it was, we were all very close knit in that regard. Um, so um, I was actually born shortly after my sister, um, obviously three kids in three and a half years. And that was just really a lot for my um, mom. So I was the last child and um, growing up, I always felt very loved. Um, and then my mom was very active in our Jewish community. And so she went, um, you know, at night to, to different meetings and she sat on different boards and she volunteered and she worked full time. And so she kind of wore many different hats. And as I got older and became a teenager, she was very supportive of my youth group activities. I was in a youth group called um, BBYO, which is B'nai B'rith Youth Organization. And she sat on a board, the adult board for that. And, you know, I was active in that. And she was very supportive. I was in marching band and I played the French horn. And she came to every competition. And of course, like a typical Jewish mother, she had the um, cooler full of snacks and she fed everybody in the band 
everybody on the pom pom squad that did their little thing with us. And so, you know, she was just extremely supportive. Um, I went away to college, still in state. I grew up in Colorado, like I said. And, um, you know, she would come up on weekends, made every birthday as big as she possibly could. We used to joke that um, they were national holidays. You know, she just really wanted us to feel valued and loved and um, she very much did that. Um, I think growing up, conflict, like with any mother-daughter relationship, became more prominent when I was trying to assert my independence and she was still trying to retain the status quo. And so it was a little difficult um, as I did go to college and I went away when she had hoped I would stay local. And then when I would date someone she didn't really want me to date. So I just did my own thing sometimes. And um, it was sometimes well-received, sometimes not. Um, my father became a paraplegic while I was in high school. And so um, that was a huge family uh, transition for us. He was in the hospital from January of 1988 until May of 1988. And then he went into rehab for a month and then was actually discharged the day before my sister graduated high school. So that was a complete reacclimation to a brand new life. It affected us financially. It affected us um, in so many different ways. And I only mention that because it did affect my relationship with my mom. Because as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old young woman being raised in a certain way, being given certain things, and then trying to adjust to a different lifestyle. And um, my parents were making much less money at the time. Um, it was, there were so many changes that hit us all at once that um, I can see now that my mom felt um, that I, I didn't see her sacrifice, you know? So she continued to work. She, um, you know, we were all teenagers, but we couldn't do the things that we used to do, like go shopping all the time or go out to lunch or things were reined in and, and, you know, conflict between us continued like any mother daughter. And so, um, you know, there were times where we just kind of went head to head. And, um, you know, I, I wish looking back and I'm trying not to shit on myself because, you know, people shit on themselves all the time, but I'm really good at that. So looking back, I wish that I had um, taken a little bit more time to see her point of view. So when I had my first child, I think everything that I did wrong was absolved because here was this grandchild um, that was 
named for my brother who passed away. So in Judaism, we name for people who pass away, who are not living. Like we would never do Wendy Jr., you know? So um, my first son was named for my brother. And um, so I think my mom kind of, I know I felt redeemed because I was thinking, here is something that I can actually provide for my mom and she can see I have some value. I mean, there was so much disconnect in my early 20s um, and challenges that my family had that I wasn't around for because I chose to go away for a job after college, to go out of state for graduate school, to take a job in Cincinnati after graduate school. And so I was never there. And that's kind of how they coined me is that I just was never there. Um, and so that's the role I took on in the family. But then when my first son, Max was born, I kind of felt like, you know, I, I was able to give something back to my family in some way. And so that felt um, kind of validated. I felt validated in that regard. Um, and so in 2006 to 2008, um, my husband and my two sons, we moved to Denver from Cincinnati so that we could take care of my parents because my, not only did my brother pass away in 2001, he passed away a week before our wedding and we had to kind of adjust. So then my sister almost four years later in April of 2005 passed away. So like I was their only child and I was the one that was never there. And here they are stuck with me. And so my father um, was 14 years older than my mom. So, and he was, you know, still a paraplegic. And my mom had some health issues. So my then husband um, was able to get transferred out to Colorado. We moved out there for two years so that um, I could take care of them. And we eventually moved in with them and I would do their grocery shopping and I would take them out to lunch and, you know, anything my mom needed, I'd run to the store, you know, things like that. And um, in some way, it was reclaiming the time that I wasn't there. Um, I know it. Uh, I know I wasn't probably the child they wanted to be stuck with because I just did my own thing, which I thought you were supposed to do as a child anyway. Like you're supposed to go out on your own and you know, assert your independence and figure out what you're meant to do. But for some reason, I think it went against everything my family had expected from me. So there was that disconnect in that regard also. Um, but we moved back for two years and then um, moved back to Cincinnati. My oldest son was uh, diagnosed with some pretty, uh, big uh, developmental needs that he had, some special needs. And um, Ohio just 
provided better services for maps than Colorado did. So we moved back to Ohio in 2008. And, you know, I remember in um, April of 2008, my mom um, went into the hospital for, for renal failure and um, she was intubated. They were cleansing her kidney through this tube that was coming out of her mouth. And she was hooked up to all these machines. And I went twice a day. I had two young kids. I had a husband that had kind of checked out. You know, he didn't really feel like it was his family for him to help with. So um, I had to stop working and I was running back and forth between the hospital and their house and getting my kids from daycare and going home. Then after the kids were asleep, I'd run back to the hospital. And so after about two weeks, she bounced back like miraculously, like one day I woke, walked into the hospital and she was awake cracking jokes with the doctor. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. We've been given a second chance. Um, but we did move back and um, within a year, uh, it was uh, her renal failure, her renal issues, her, um, all of her health problems kind of compounded, you know? And I was due with my third child on Thursday, June 25th of 2009. And that's actually when Michael Jackson died, okay? <laughs> and the only reason I know that is because I was sitting in the car wondering if, you know, I'm gonna have this baby today and then over the radio, they announce it. So that's so funny how you remember things. So my mom actually went into the hospital that Tuesday, the 23rd of June. The last time I spoke to her was Friday, the 26th of June. And it was kind of like she was in two worlds. You know, she, she wasn't understanding me. She had told the nurses not to tell me anything because I was about to have a baby and she didn't want me stressed out. So I was like, all right. I said to the nurses, you better just tell me everything right now. Um, I remember the doctors called over the weekend and said, she's just not going to recover. And then that Sunday, the 28th, I had my uh, third son. And Monday in the hospital, I'm on the phone nursing my baby. We're having a meeting with hospice. My um, mother's brother is flying in from Palm Springs. Like we're trying to orchestrate the next steps. And um, I remember that Thursday, July 1st, wait, was it July 1st or 2nd? I think it was the 2nd. And uh, like, I got a feeling, you know, you get these feelings and you're like, I better call the hospital. It was 4.45 my time, uh, Eastern time, or no, that was Denver time. So that was mountain time. And I called and I asked the nurse, it's funny what you remember. Her name was Jax. J-A-X. And I'm like, right? So I call and she answered and I said, how is my mother doing? And she said, she just passed away. Right when the time I initially um, 
went to call. And um, yeah, that was really hard because in the Jewish faith, what we do is uh, we bury within 24 hours because um, we believe that uh, we call it the neshama, which is the soul of the person still hangs around the physical body until they're buried. And so in order for them to go into the next world, we should really, you know, get this done. But um, also in the Jewish faith, when you have a boy, the circumcision is eight days after the birth. So I was not able to travel. Not that I would with a five-day-old baby. Um, so the funeral was that uh, Friday, July 3rd. And my cousin, Honey, put her cell phone on the podium because we do graveside burial, most likely, um, for just to kind of, I mean, you can do it in the synagogue and then drive out to the graveside and do it there. But, you know, we usually do one stop. And, um, you know, it was, I remember I was sitting in um, my bedroom and I was holding my baby and, and then I put him down to nap. And uh, there was such a pain in my chest. You know, I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And I didn't, I didn't think I would live. I thought I was actually dying. It was beyond. And um, I remember that Friday before she passed. So the 26th of June, I remember that I kept trying to ask forgiveness from her because I was such a terrible daughter, you know, and I wasn't there when she needed me. And I, I couldn't be the person she wanted me to be, like my sister and my brother who sacrificed their own life to help with my dad and, and her as her disabilities became more prominent and I couldn't do it. And so I've lived with that, you know, for almost 12 years. And um, I really wish I could have asked, but when I think back on the conversation and she was, she wasn't coherent, you know, she was telling, I would ask her a question and she would answer a different question. And, you know, the doctors were in there and I think my cousin Honey was in the room and it was just like, there wasn't that moment where I could say, I really need your forgiveness so I can heal. And, you know, that's, we go back to shooting now on our, so I should have done it. Um, but yeah, so um, I recognize looking back that uh, I was I was a selfish person, and I know that um, I should have done more to connect with her and to be a better daughter. Um, but you know, I still talk to her. I, I still ask forgiveness as, you know, I'm sitting in the car, you know, and uh, something pops in my head or, you know, something like that. I'll, you know, just say, I hope you can forgive me. 
um, part of me is, you know, like afraid she's mad at me, you know, still that, I don't know. Um, I have no idea at this point. Is there, is there anything in the Jewish religion about, about forgiveness or asking for forgiveness or any sort of, you know, symbolism or ritual for that? There kind of is. Thing? There okay. is. And so I really need to let this go <laughs> because what we believe is you ask forgiveness every year and then it's done. Mm -hmm. So if you're not able to ask forgiveness, so this happens right around our fall holidays. So this is Rosh Hashanah, which is our Jewish new year, um, to Yom Kippur, which is our holiest day of the year, which is our day of atonement. So between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are 10 days. And during those 10 days, it's the most ideal time to call people and say, you know, I am so sorry that I um, spoke poorly about you or I forgot to get your kid that day or, you know, whatever's in your mind that you feel like you need to ask forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is not available for you to ask forgiveness, you're supposed to ask like three times, like put it out there. And so I do remember that year in 2009 in synagogue as I'm praying, you know, for God to forgive me, for my mom to forgive me, because I just can't, it, it wasn't reconciled when it needed to be. Mm -hmm. However, because, um, and I know most religions are very good at this, the guilt is issue part of it. Um, I should have let it go, you know, 12, 11, 12 years ago, but there are still things that um, I miss, you know, like she was, she met my first two children. Okay. And she didn't meet my last son who is named for her partially. Um, you know, she wasn't able to help me through my divorce there's times, and I don't know if it's, it's with you, with you as well, but, um, like I go to pick up the phone and I'm like, what? Because mm -hmm. the way the schedule worked, it became like this anticipation. So like after my brother passed and then my sister passed, I got into a routine with them where I would call three times a day. Wow. I knew because my dad had, um, was a paraplegic, he had a morning nurse, he had a night nurse, meals and wheels came at noon. So like I knew people were checking in on them. Um, I, I knew that, and we had these great neighbors, Carolyn and Ed, who have since passed away too, that they were active and mobile and anything my parents needed. They And then they helped me when I had to clean out my childhood home and sell it. And they were just so critical in in everything I needed for that, for my parents. And, and they were that way and they were phenomenal. I used to call them, I'd wake up and I'd call them at eight my time, which would be 6 a.m. there. And they're up because they're up, you know, the, the morning nurse came and my dad is the Hoyer lift is, you know, the chair, everything's going on. And then I would call them 
in the afternoon just to see how they're doing and then in the evening before bed. So I kind of knew everything. Um, I knew doctor's appointments. Um, I was their medical power of attorney, their power of attorney. I had their do not resuscitate documents that were notarized. And I remember um, advocating for them with different community agencies when I was out there. Um, a lot of people felt that, um, you know, they did have money, that they could do things. And, you know, I felt like, no, I need to really advocate for them. And I did. So, but I do miss them um, because then three years later, um, I was called out to Colorado because um, I needed to, my dad was put in comfort care. So he was in the hospital for a week and then he died and then we sat Shiva and then I flew home. So like I was starting to clean out my childhood home from 2011, early 2011 through the end of January of 2013. And so I was, took me a couple years and, you know, because they were both disabled, the house was in complete disrepair. Um, and I sold it to someone who would flip it. And uh, he made the profit, not me. Um, but, you know, it is eye-opening to see your childhood home in, dump in dumpsters, you know, and uh, it was just, me doing that so you know that's really it mm -hmm. um you, you you have a lot on your plate with not not just your mom your brother and your sister and your dad so you're like me you're the only one left living in your immediate family correct yeah so you know i mean my sister just passed away a year ago um i think you know, I was able to have conversations with her about those things I needed to process with my parents. Um, and so, all, you know, all those, those close-knit people that you would probably do that with are not available to you. Um, so you, you know, you, I, I wish I could hug you through the computer, uh, through the screen, because you, you have a lot, uh, a lot on your plate, on your emotional plate, on your mental plate, um, with yeah. being the last one left in your family, and you're not even fifty yet. You know, most people. No, I'm not. Yeah, I'll be I turning know. fifty in October. If anybody yeah. wants to send a gift, I'm good. <laughs> um, yeah. um, but you know what? It's interesting. But, when I was seeing Shiva for my dad, and I don't know if this. I know we talked about it briefly in your signature program, it's phenomenal, um, was what people say, you know, and it's interesting. I, at my dad's Shiva, people called me an orphan, you know, and I was like, an orphan? Like, who's that? Are you talking to the person behind me? Because um, I do recognize I sound like a Lifetime movie. Like, how does this happen yeah. to, to one person, yeah. you know, and how do you keep going? And how do you divorce your husband and have a special needs child? You know, whatever, you know, it's just like, I don't even know. Um, I'm just like on autopilot, like most women, because you have to do what you have to do. 
you know, there's no stopping. So, yeah, yeah. But there is, there is, um, I'm sure that there are times, you know, you just, you rattled off that, you know, that your mom didn't get to meet your three sons and she wasn't there to be able to support you through your divorce. You know, there's going to continue to be times when you miss the presence of her um, in your life. So, you know, part of what we did in the program was trying to be aware of, of that and being prepared for it. um, Because, you know, my premise is, is that grief doesn't go away. That unfortunately, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I don't think it goes away. So I do remember, if you don't mind me sharing, um, it really hit me when my oldest son was bar mitzvahed. So um, we were taking pictures in the synagogue and I was able to hire a photographer that works with special needs children. So trying to get a um, special needs child to look at the camera or stand still or not climb your brothers, you know, at times when you're not supposed to. Right. Um, So this photographer was phenomenal. And I remember my aunt and uncle, my uncle Ralphie and Aunt Sippy were there. And so, you know, we had taken all these pictures with my husband's family and they, the photographer's like, okay, Wendy, I go up to the front, um, you know, where the ark is that holds our Torah and I'm holding the hands of my aunt and uncle and I lose it. I absolutely lose it. It was, um, you know, it's still affecting me. I mean, I'm going to blame Rose, Rosacea, but I'm, I'm pretty much, yeah, it's, it's something else. I, it just, it hit me. Uh, it took me a, um, a moment or two to recover because there was no one there for me. That's very tough. So you talked about when you were 16 and 17 year old, years old and when your dad um, became a paraplegic and so many changes all at once and that you wish you had taken the time to see her point of view. The only thing that I would say to you is that at 16, 17 years old, you don't have the mental capacity to do that, okay? You're, you're looking at that, you know, from an adult perspective, uh, looking back, I think you said it was probably once you had kids of your own, you know, I think that we all look at our parents in a different way. Right. Um, but if you listen back to any of these podcasts that I've done, if the daughter made it to the teenage, I didn't make it to the real teenage years with my mom, but any daughter who did, there was conflict. Because that's a natural progression of the relationship. Um, And there's just one other thing that I wanted to say to you is that, you know, that you, you know, felt bad for moving away and that, um, you know, you weren't, the the thing about Wendy was that she wasn't there. Yeah. Um, But, you know, maybe, maybe you were preparing for your own life of being a mom to your three boys you know, doing what you needed to do to build the life, to be able to be the parent for your three boys, because now you're, you're doing that as a single mom. And I watched something recently. um, It was actually about the pandemic within the pandemic and anxiety and depression and our, and kids is at an all time high. Mm -hmm. And he said that our job as parents is not to like, you know, control or, or do these things with our kids, but it is to raise the parents of our grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And so if you kind of think of it as that, if you think of, if your mom looks at you and thinks about 
that her job was to raise you to be able to be the mom to Max and, and your two sons. Yeah. I, I think she would be pretty proud because you're doing the hard work every day for them. You talked about being an advocate for your parents. I yeah. know that you are such a great advocate for your three boys. Yeah. So, you know, the thing that we've talked about in the program was you being a big advocate for Wendy, which that's is, hard. Is, you know, it is. I'm sure it is for you too, Beth. It's hard, but that's also from what I understand and what I've learned from the program and, and the other women who contributed in the program is that like Yvonne would say is by taking care of ourselves, they see that example. They see that it's okay to stop and breathe. It's okay to take a moment to take care of yourself. Um, it's, it's so funny because I've never done this. Actually, this afternoon, I'm getting my hair done. I'm going to get low lights. I don't even know what that is, but my friend Tara told me about it. And so I know. So I'm only 49 and getting my hair done for the first time. Um, I'm going to rock it out. And you're right. So that, that, that presentation that was part of that, the, the, the psychologist said that the problem is, is that kids aren't, don't experience, there's a healthy amount of stress that our kids need to experience. So yeah. you're right. The fact that your boys are seeing you grieve and take care and admit when we fall short, you know, all those things, they are, they're experiencing real life situations and that will help them develop resilience, which is what our kid, you know, what this, this yeah. generation of growing up kids needs so that they can learn how to depend on themselves. Yeah. yeah. As, because as my son just came in asking for food, right? In the middle of the podcast. Yeah, all boys are like that. They're all boys are like that. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. I told them I was in a meeting. It's okay. I'll leave a Scooby snack by the door. Oh my goodness. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I know that you and I are going to continue to stay in touch, but my hope for you is just that one thing that I have realized now, my journey has been 37 years without my mom. So I have a little leg up on you on that mm -hmm. in the time department and processing and thinking and overthinking and all those things is that I am starting to realize that I have to love myself first mm -hmm. um, to be able to depend and share and um, accept love from anybody else. I have to learn how to, to work on that self-love. Um, and so that's what I, I think you're doing it. I think you're doing it. And, you know, I just hope that you can continue to find ways to, I was thinking you should write a pros and cons list. Like as you were talking about the support you gave to your parents, you moved back for two years. You were their power of attorney. You called three times a day. Maybe you should write a like the, you, you've, you have this feeling that you weren't there for them, that you didn't do enough. I don't know, maybe if you wrote it down and you saw the list, one side would be a whole lot longer than the other because I feel like you did do it. You moved back for two years with a young son and, and then you had your second one while you were back there? No, I, we had two in, in Ohio and then we moved back. Okay. Um, my youngest was six months when we moved. Okay. And um Maybe I should write it down. Um, I am working on that self-love piece. Um, one of the things in our family, and this is a whole other podcast, is um, weight, you know, like being overweight okay. and self-love being directly connected with what the scale said. 
And so I was acutely aware since I was five years old of how to manage my worth in my family, not only my immediate family, but my extended family as well, that it, it only, you only got positive reinforcement if you were thinner. Now, now I was never thin because I joke that I was, you know, born 90 pounds or something. You know, I, that is key. And I'm just now realizing that I'm trying to eradicate the negative self-talk um, because it only perpetuates me into either overspending or overeating or trying to compensate in some way externally to find that worth when um, back on my marriage and I'm like, um, I was married for 17 and a half years. So it's not like I didn't give it a shot. Um, I, I felt like I did, um, but you know, there's, there's a lot tied into my past and the failure of my marriage and the loss of my family and, um, how I can possibly rebuild internally. Like you said, that self-love, the self-care. Um, so I, I am extremely aware of it. I know it um, affects my boys. If I, my youngest is such an impact, he's like, mommy, are you sad? Are you mad? What can I do for you? And I'm just like, just be a good person, make good decisions, you know, mm -hmm. judge people favorably, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm really aware of that now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the benefits that comes with age. I think, you know, we get through, all that garbage and stuff that we go through as kids and all the things that we learn from our families. And then we reach an age where we decide to start living the lives that we want to live based yeah. on the values that are important to us, you know, which, and there's all these things about, you know, I'll be happy when I lose 10 pounds or I'll be happy when I have the McMansion or when I have the, you know, car. And you know what, when people get there, you're still, you're still yeah. you, you're still, you know, so it's, it is that internal, you know, dialogue. Um, and, and just the fact that you're recognizing it is, is phenomenal. You know, a lot of people go through their whole lives just on automatic pilot, like you said earlier. Um, so good for you. And I'll be here with you beside you with all this hard work because we're going to do it together. So, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and this is totally inappropriate, but when you said that, um, your parents had three kids in three and a half years. Yeah. My husband, my husband would say they need to watch some more TV. That's what I was actually going to say is like, did you guys not have a TV? Right. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, oh, but I do remember my mom saying that my sister was born in July of 1970 and they found out I was coming in, um, the spring of, of 71. And she's just like, how am I going to do this? She literally thought she had the flu. So she went to her doctor and she's like, can't keep anything down. She didn't even think it could be a baby because she just had a baby. The baby wasn't even a year old. Right. And the doctor's like, it's not the flu, it's a baby. And then she was like, oh my gosh. Now, obviously 
not expected, but definitely wanted. I keep saying that. I might make a bumper sticker. I don't know. But <laughs> really, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, you know, I mean, right now this podcast is called Daughters Without Moms, but we are both also Daughters Without Dads and Daughters Without Sisters. And and like you said, you have a lot to your story. So mm-hmm. we may have to get back together again and revisit some of the other parts of your grief journey that you're on. Yeah. Um, I do like to try to finish with if you have, you know, something that you've learned along the way, a piece of advice that you would share with other people who are on the journey. Is there any sort of takeaway you would have that you would want people to remember? Oh, the one thing that just keeps popping in my head is self-forgiveness. Because when you do look back and you see everything that you should have done or could have done, but chose not to do that self-forgiveness only makes it possible to heal and move forward. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, I vacillate, I go back and forth. It's not a linear process, Um, but um, if I make two steps back, I definitely am going forward. And I think I mentioned in your signature program that the turtle always wins, right? So if we just keep at it, baby steps. We're going to make it. We're going to get there. Um, and just, uh, self-forgiveness. That's good. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. So tell people where they can find you because you have a little thing going on that people need to know. Uh, You know, with made to do this with Kathy Heller, we, we met Mm -hmm. and, um, I'm a college administrator in Cincinnati and I work at Cincinnati State, which is a um, community college just right here in the middle of the city. And I've been working in higher ed for over 20 years. Thought it would be a great side hustle to help families navigate the college process. And so because I love coffee as well, I have created a business called The Caffeinated College Coach. And I help families talk about application, the essay, financial aid, scholarships, resources on campus. Um, And it's been ever changing since COVID. And, you know, campuses have changed policies, what to do. And so I kind of take that stress away um, from families so that they can breathe a little bit easier about it. And um, I'm on Instagram at caffeinated underscore college underscore coach. Um, And so you can check me out. And it's been a learning curve with all this technology. So if you see something that you're not sure what it is, judge me favorably because I don't know. (laughs) It's been a lot. Yeah. Well, and you have a great sense of humor. If you guys go and follow Wendy, she posts these videos every once in a while and just has a beautiful sense of humor um, under all of of all the other things that she uh, carries with her. I always you always just make me laugh with the things that you post. So I'm really thankful for you. And you are right. And no better time than now to need a caffeinated college coach, because I have a senior in high school who has decided to take a gap year, um, but navigating everything that's so up in the air right now and, and that, you know, that it's just constantly trying to hit a moving target. So having somebody like you to ha- help navigate the process, it's really, really beneficial. So I will put um, Wendy's handle in the show notes so that if you're walking or running or driving your car, don't try to write it down. I will put it in the show notes so that you can um, find her there. 
And also Wendy is going to be another guest on the podcast soon. I'm going to interview the women that just finished the, um, my signature program that she talked about. So we'll be doing some more talking. And as I said, I know that um, my friendship with Wendy is here to stay. She's a blessing Absolutely. to me. So Absolutely. thank you so much for being here and for yeah. sharing your story. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in being interviewed for a podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.